How are you doing, dude? Uh, not too bad. I mean, I literally just got out of bed 10 minutes ago. Something like that. <laughs> yep, yep. So that's how my day's going. How are you doing? Good. I, um, yeah, I was watching, um, I'm, I'm cat sitting for Ash this week. All right. Um, yeah. So I was just hanging out with Olive this morning and she's the most beautiful cat that has ever been. I love her. I will die for her. Oh my God. She like came and curled up on my lap while I was reading this morning. I was like, Oh my God. Like, I don't know. I don't know how Ash leaves her apartment with Olive there. I don't either. I would just stay in there forever. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, um, I'm off to a pleasant start this morning. I like, I have some, some thoughts for today. <laughs> I, uh, I had enough time to like process cube. Yeah. Yeah. I needed to like, I needed to, to just, yeah, I just needed to process cube. <laughs> That's valid. I'm glad you like put so much information in the script because I forgot everyone's name and I didn't realize like what most professions like the characters did in cube two. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's ripped straight from Wikipedia. <laughs> um, yeah. I figured we would need something. Cause like both of the films have, you know, I think the first one is like five kind of main characters and then yeah. six or seven in the second one. So yeah, I figured we would not be able to like follow anything without them. And the second movie, they literally say what their occupation is like once. Yeah. For the most characters, it's not even that important. Right, right. Yeah, it's not really, like, super defining. Right. Hello, listeners everywhere, and welcome to uh, Return to the Telepodcast. This is a show about shitty horror movie sequels, prequels, reboots, etc., whatever. My name is Kevin Serrano Cheveria, and I am joined by my friend, co-host, colleague, Bryce Patterson. Say hello to the audience, Bryce. Hello. (laughs) Hey, everybody. (laughs) Uh, If this is your first time joining us, this is what this whole thing is about. Uh, Each episode of the show, we're going to focus on an iconic, or in this case, a little less iconic, but whatever, horror movie, uh, its sequel, its remake, whatever. Uh, Bryce and I are going to explore the non-negotiable elements. Non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. Negotiable. I don't remember how that word even I don't I don't know that word I don't know her (laughs) the non-negotiable elements that made the original film so great and how the sequel falls short after that you're going to pitch each other ideas for different directions that the story could have gone for this week we're going to be talking about the 1997 cult classic cube and it's 2002 sequel, Cube 2, Hypercube. 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 Ugh. So I love, I love the original Cube, I should yeah. say. Sequels, I've watched, I watched uh, Cube 2 and Cube 0, both of which are hot garbage. But we're going to get into those. So yeah. before I like gush into like how much I love Cube, can you like let me know about like your history with these films? I know that like you watch them for the first time fairly recently, but have you like even heard about them? Had you had an idea of like what they were about besides like cubes? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they're, they're funny. They're, they're both movies that I feel like have just been hanging. I, I mean, for years we're just like on Netflix for free. 
yes. which they weren't they were. when we watched them the other night. They were we not. actually I had to rent real them. money. <laughs> yeah, real money went into watching Hypercube. I had to um, I had to spend four dollars on Cube Two Hypercube, and that is four dollars I'm never going to get back. Yeah, so they were they were movies that like I I had like a vague kind of awareness of, um, and I think. You know, when I when I first when I was like right out of college was when I got really, really into horror films. Like I, I'd grown up on horror, but that was the point where I was like, I want to see everything. Right. And so they've been like sort of sort of circling me for, for, for years, but I'd never they've seen been them. Cubing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, they're uh I mean the first cube was was really interesting. Um mm-hmm. I've I have a lot to say about it. And the second cube is like it's a mess on like quantum levels. Like it's Quite it's literally. shitty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's shitty in ways that I think I was like kind of unprepared for. Yeah. Um, but it was a blast. As you like stated already, like they were on Netflix for a real long time. That's when I first watched them. I think I was like 17-ish, 18-ish, if Netflix even existed back then, which I think it did. I just watched I watched the first cube movie which I like, vaguely had some idea about. And like immediately after, like I was hooked on it. It very much felt to me like a very quintessential, like hyper-specific genre of horror movies that I could really only define as like game show if people died. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So like Saw, Cube, Hunger Games, but that's not really a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I've never seen Battle Royale, but I feel like oh, that yeah, might Battle fall Royale. into the same kind of thing. Oh, yeah, uh, Battle... or Squid Game. Yeah, yeah. It's a hyper-specific genre that is, for the most part, done absolutely terribly. But, like, in the case of Cube, at least the first one, I feel like it was done fairly well. The acting was kind of subpar. The writing could have been a little bit better, but I still love it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 an impressive movie uh, on yeah. some level, I think, right. We were talking about when we were watching it, it's basically just one set for the entire film. Um, and we, we looked at the budget, I think it was like $350,000 mm-hmm. in 1997, which is yep. still absurdly low. I don't know if it was like in Canadian dollars. Cause the film was produced in Canada. Yeah. And I don't really know <laughs> what the exchange rate is between those at you all. You don't know the exchange rate of Canadian dollars to USD in 1997? You know, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. I don't know why I'm in higher education because apparently I don't know anything. I mean, same. I feel that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, like, they're kind of astounding. Oh, well, okay. Cube One is kind yeah. of astounding for what it is, just that it's this incredibly small scale, low budget film that manages to be like pretty engaging and, and pretty captivating throughout without any real like motion. Um, it's, it's, I, I was thinking about it today that I feel like it's almost closer to a stage play in some yeah, ways. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really impressive how much the directors worked with the actors. Like they characterized all of them so much and the set really worked towards that characterization very well. Uh, it really has all of the elements of a good horror movie, which is like good characters with solid backgrounds, fairly gory deaths, and math. Yeah. Oh, the sweet math. <laughs> it has it has enough math where I can like believe it. Cube two has way too much fucking theoretical math that I'm just lost the entire time. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I feel like we might be uh, we might be getting ahead of ourselves <laughs> into like what what made it uh, what made it iconic and why the second one is such a fucking. I know. I just mess. can't. I just really want to talk about Keep Two, but I'll contain myself. Yeah, I'll- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'll um, I'll summarize Cube, uh, the the original Cube, really fast. Okay, and I I mean it's it's hard, right? Because there's very little plot. Essentially, we have a group of five or six characters that find themselves in this weird sort of like industrial looking cube thing. They're basically inside of a giant mm-hmm. Rubik's cube. It's um, very matrixy. Yes, yeah, very much like kind of late 90s sci-fi oh, yeah. uh, aesthetic to it. And we have, uh, so we have Quentin, who's a cop. Uh, we have Levin, who's either high school or college age. It's not fully clear. Right. Um, but she's a, a math prodigy. We have Worth, who's the cynical guy that we gradually realize actually designed the outer shell of the cube. Um, we have Kazan, who's an intellectually uh, disabled man, Holloway, who's a doctor, and this guy Renz slash the Ren, who's an escape artist. Um, and so, or he's escaped from a bunch of prisons, I guess. So, so we have these characters. Uh, over the course of the film, they gradually are trying to escape from the <laughs> giant Rubik's Cube by uh, moving from from cube to cube and there's a lot of math involved uh, people start to die and over time Quentin the cop uh, gradually starts to really lose it and so he ends up killing a couple of the characters and in the end uh, Kazan is the only one who escapes that is a fairly good summary of Q cool yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah again it's it's difficult right because it's, it's there are there are plot points i guess but a lot of it is like can i explain cartesian coordinates and the answer is no because i barely understand them <laughs> yeah uh the main there really is no main villain of cube per yeah. se like the monster in the movie is the cube and like what it turns people into yeah it's like when you like go through the movie like you see uh, not just like Quentin becoming this like murderous cop, <laughs> but you also see like Halloway becoming this paranoid anti-establishment sort of person. And you see like Worth really digging into his cynicism, especially at the beginning. So it's really very much like an allegory of like what people are like when they're not in society, when they're kind of like forced to interact with each other. It's very much like a, they're lost on a desert island, except the desert island wants to kill them a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Math. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of Lord of the Flies with a lot of math. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting, you know, throughout the film, they they have these different discussions of like, oh, the cube is made by like the government or by corporations, or the cube is some rich guy's like perverted playhouse. Um, and we never actually find out what, what the cube is, you know, like the cube could be capitalism. The cube could, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, uh, metaphorically the cube could be capitalism, but also like, um, we, we don't know the intentions that put them there. And I actually think that's one of the real strengths of the original film. Uh, the, the note that I made for myself is that like, it doesn't answer questions that don't need answers, which I think is a failing of a lot of films, right. right. That I, I think the lack of motive is so interesting and so compelling in, mm. in, in the film in a way that 
again, Hypercube just utterly, utterly fucks up. <laughs> That's like why the cube is such a good monster. Cause like I feel like in every in every like good horror movie, you have like a monster or some kind of like villain or whatever whose motives or background isn't completely known. So if the audience can like make that like jump or make that sort of like guessing game of like why are they doing this? What is this? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And we saw that in like Halloween because we didn't fucking know that much about Michael Myers, and we saw it in Texas Chainsaw as well. So like we don't really know very much who like Leatherface is, why he's killing all these people, etc. Uh, and the cube's the same way. We don't know who built it necessarily. We don't know why it's there. We don't know even like the whole point of them being in the cube is. Yeah. Well, and we we never really learn even like why the cube was built. Right. We have right. Worth, the character who designed the kind of exterior shell of it. He, you know, he has this whole thing of like, yeah, I just was working a job through bureaucrats and. <laughs> I uh, I'm gonna reference Hannah Arendt here uh, Ooh, to boy. bring in a little bit of theory. Oh yeah, oh I love it. Yeah, that Hannah Arendt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know she has this theory or the, this idea that she put forward the banality of evil, which is all about the ways that kind of you know horrific things can be done by people who aren't necessarily inherently terrible. Hmm. Um, and it's sort of the ways that in our kind of post-industrialized society bureaucracy kind of allows people to take part in things without ever actually having to touch them. So Worth is, you know, part of the the group that makes this horrible murder machine. But, you know, he he's like, well, I, I didn't know what I was doing, right? I was just kind of part of this bureaucracy. Right. And I, I think that's very much tied into kind of the, the thematic work that the film is doing. Um, the Even the, the term banality of evil was coined by Arendt when she was talking about Adolf Eichmann, who was a Nazi war criminal, who basically mm-hmm. had this, uh, not quite the same argument, but was basically a bureaucrat whose actions killed, you know, God knows how many people. Um, but he himself, I, she describes him less as a monster and more like a clown. Right. Um, and it's like really, really fitting that like, at least some of these characters are that, like outside in the real world. Quentin, especially as he's like a cop, and then he kind of becomes that, but he plays a much more active role in like, I wouldn't say like the oppression of people, but very much more in like the direct evil of the institution that he is or that he's a part of because he starts fucking murdering people. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Well, and he's even called a Nazi like two different times that I counted yeah. in the film. You know, I think there's very much this sense of how you you have this kind of masculine ego run amok and how that drives towards, you know, oppression and violence over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, you know, massively sped up because they're inside a giant evil Rubik's Cube. Pretty much. Yeah, Cube says a cab, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the 90s, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know, it's um, not to harp on how small scale it is. I just think that it's it's really impressive that the scope uh, the scope of the film just stays so intimate throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that it uh, is another element that by, by staying so focused, right. We never go outside of the cube. And even at the very end, when Kazan is standing kind of on the edge of escaping, all we see coming in is white light, right? We have no concept yeah. of like what the outside world is like. We don't know if we're in the future, in the present day, what have you. And I think by doing that, by keeping it so small scale and so tight, it allows for the kind of 
really interesting philosophical conversations that they that they have throughout the film you know which right. uh, again is them trying to understand something that's fundamentally inscrutable because they're inside of it yeah i very much liked somebody who like suggested that the cube might have been like hell or like an interpretation of hell it kind of makes sense and if you kind of take it that way it's interesting that kazan who is like in an ableist reading or like a late 90s reading which would kind of be the same he is like the only like truly innocent person out of like everyone in the cast like he never like does anything bad (laughs) while inside the cube and he's never like been presumably anyway he's never like done anything bad outside the cube either he is like completely sinless more or less and he's the only one that ends up surviving yeah no i I think that's a really a really interesting reading and i think you know one of the things that makes the film work is it has this kind of the the emotional register i guess of it is is fairly textured that there's there's a moment where Quentin is just, you know, he's saying that Kazan is another trap, right? We need to mm-hmm. leave him behind. And then Holloway, the doctor, is adamant that they need to bring him along, you know? And so we have both, you know, the ways that people collapse under pressure, you know, into into violence and, and authoritarianism and what have you. And then we also have these moments of genuine compassion in, in the, the worst circumstances. And I think it's kind of balancing both of those things is sort of at least to my mind like what what allows it to work without becoming kind of the kind of mean-spirited sort of thing that i think we see in like say the saw sequels where it's very much just like you know creative ways to butcher people (laughs) and it's like in the saw movies apparently everyone just deserves to go to like this weird interpretation of hell because they suffer from mental illnesses i guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah well, like here, it feels much more fair, I guess, in that it's just like these random people who, like, they have the skills if they would work together to all get out alive, but they don't because they're all fundamentally flawed, except for Kazanik. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because they've been chosen specifically because they have this set of skills, right? So we have mm-hmm. Levin, who's the the math prodigy. Kazan is intellectually disabled, but he's able to what calculate factors perfectly on the spot and so you have this handful of people that you're right yeah if they work together they should all be able to survive and they have this really particular i'm thinking of liam neeson like i have a particular set of skills i will find you and whatever i've actually never seen taken i just know that one weird moment it's exactly Um, like cube yeah yeah (laughs) but yeah so 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 they've been given everything they need to survive and then it's kind of the innate flaws of their characters that mean that all of them except for kazan end up dying again it's a very allegorical film it's very much like we're all in this cube of life more of a sphere actually but whatever we're all in this sphere of life and we've got to work together in order to like make it out but cops keep getting in the way. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like, so the characters in Cube, I think are an interesting, they both work and don't work for me. Okay. Um, you know, I, I think, I, 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 as you kind of said at the beginning, I think some of the acting is shaky at times. I think yeah. the script for a film like this um, needs to be just rock solid. And it's interesting, but I don't, I don't think it's quite on the level that it would need to be. Um, but I mean, I, I love Levin. I thought she was really fun and, and really mm. interesting. But yeah, what were what were your thoughts? My initial thought, honestly, of like things that could be improved on Cube is kind of like the quote unquote cold opening 
which is just some like random dude who is in the cube, doesn't even have a name. We don't even follow him at all. And he just dies. Yeah, he just gets cubed by like a laser he or something. Cubed. He gets cubed in the cube. But like we don't get anything about him. And like I feel like Cube 2 does that better. Because <laughs> they do the same thing, except we get background information on this character. But like in Cube, we don't know anything about this person. They're just dead immediately and we don't care. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because there's that guy and then there's uh, the Ren, right? The oh, yeah, guy who's yeah. escaped all these prisons who, you know, I mean, I get the sense that the way that they kind of were structuring the film, they're like, okay, this is how we prove that we're serious, right? Like the guy who knows how to escape gets taken out like instantly. But it did feel almost like a, almost a missed opportunity for me that like that character felt like they could add more texture than they end up being able to because he gets what like sprayed with acid in the face in the first like 15 minutes or something. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to like have a person who like has an approach to get out of the cube. That isn't math. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that would make it much, much less centered around like solving these equations or whatever that like the average viewer wouldn't really understand. Not yeah. that it's like particularly hard math. It's just like, I don't know. I don't know Descartesian, whatever the fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think maybe what it is is like we don't really have the tools early on in the movie to solve the mysteries that come later. Right. Which, um, you know, I mean, at least in like a mystery film or something, you know, if you watch or if you read Agatha Christie, you know, I think generally fairly early on, you know everything that you need to know to be able to solve the mystery. Yeah. Uh, or you're given all the pieces. And I think, you know, we kind of just get glances of these numbers that I don't think anybody would look at and be like, oh, those are all even factorials, which means this room right. is safe or whatever it is. You'd have to be like a math wizard with no friends in order to do that, which thankfully we have one of those in the film. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> all righty. Do you have any other thoughts on Cube or how it can be improved? or what your feelings were about it, et cetera, et cetera? You know, the one last thing that I did want from it was I actually felt like the traps, we just didn't get to see them used all that much. You know, no, fairly really. early on, they figure out how to do the thing where they like throw the boot. Um, and then when they figure out that's not enough, they start doing the math side of it, right? Mm-hmm. But it, it it feels like, and, and, you know, I mean, I think that at heart, the human drama is really what what drives the plot. And I think there's a lot of value to that. But I wouldn't mind like a little bit more as far as the trap side of it goes. I think that's really fun and interesting. Have you considered that maybe they are the traps in the cube? I mean, that's what Quentin says about Kazan, right? Um, and For that sure. alone, I think, is actually philosophically really, really interesting. Right. Um, but you're right that like in the end, right, Quentin is is a trap more yeah. than he's an asset to the group. I mean, he I'm- does kill like half of them. <laughs> I mean, like, if you think about it, like, he is the one that makes the least sense to be there. Like, what's a cop going to do in this situation? Yeah, become a dictator. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So he himself is the trap, at least in my opinion. But in terms of, like, the traps in the cube themselves, I tend to agree with you. Like, the only ones we really see a lot of are, like, the weird cube machine thing that cubes people <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, the acid Suprema trigger thingy. Uh, and that's really it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm hesitant to like give excuses to the film, but I kind of put that to the fact that they had a very small budget. No, I totally agree. And I think it's maybe more, you know, an area that the sequel could 
had an opportunity to to grow in, I guess, right. w- once they had a bigger budget, that it felt like pretty quickly, right, the traps become pretty insignificant. And yeah. then it's just figuring out how to move through the cubes themselves, yeah. which is interesting. But but yeah, it, it, it feels like they be- the, the traps themselves become only something that slows them down after pretty a certain much, yeah. point. Yeah, the traps are more visually interesting, but plot-wise and like story-wise, they don't really make any sense. In my opinion, they're at least they're worse than the traps in the first movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So with that, let's move on to Cube Two, Hypercube. 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 So let me summarize the film as best as I can, real quick. Yeah. Good luck. It is a hot mess and a half. So, Cube 2 starts out in a very similar way to Cube 1. We get this character in this quote-unquote cold opening who is in the cube. Unlike the first one, however, this character doesn't die. We just ignore them for a little bit. (laughs) Then we just go on to, uh, in a very similar way to the other Cube, or the first Cube movie, we start out with Kate, who is a psychotherapist. She eventually finds other characters, uh, such as Simon, who is a private investigator who tries to kill Kate initially because he is paranoid as shit. We also meet Sasha, who is a blind hacker. Jerry, who is an engineer with a sweater vest. Uh, Max, who is like a 20-ish year old game developer. Uh, And Mrs. Paley, who is a uh, theoretical mathematician with uh, severe dementia. Uh, so initially, like all of them are like just trying to figure out what the fuck is happening, why they're in the cube. It, it's essentially very much similar to uh, the first cube movie. Uh, and they move through like the different rooms and whatnot with traps laid out. But the traps in the cube. So like the cube itself is a hypercube or a um, tesseract, I think is the other term that they use, mm-hmm. which is like this fucking weird ass like math concept. That's like a four dimensional cube. That they're all stuck in somehow. Uh, so because of that, all of the traps, quote unquote traps, I don't know, are like weird time concepts or like spatial concepts or things like that. Like one of the rooms is like everyone moves really slowly or like everyone moves really fast or like perception of time is really weird. Another room is just like a wall that like slowly gets smaller and just like smushes you. Another one is just like random, like columns that take off your head it's really strange oh yeah there's also the the fucking the fucking shape that just like slaughters yeah. people it's just like literally a square that turns into this like weird multi-hedral shape thingamajig that just blenders people inside of it but all the traps are, are like very much focused on math when they all look like maybe early 2000s windows screensavers they do it looks terrible <laughs> But yeah, so all of them are like doing that. They kind of figure out who each other is slowly, very slowly. They don't really do a very good job of like figuring out how to get out for a while. Eventually they meet Julia, who's a lawyer. They figure out that the cube itself is built by a company that they all have connections to. Uh, Somehow it's like a weapons manufacturing company, something like that. So eventually what ends up happening is that like Simon either like kills everyone purposefully uh, or inadvertently or for characters like Max and Julia, they just have sex and then die. Yeah, the yeah. 
they just like find themselves in a cube part of the cube that's like time is fucking weird so they just like age really fast and then die while they're having sex bone themselves out of existence it's interesting it's very interesting <laughs> yeah yeah it's a it's a weird moment it looks closer to like a music video really than does. like anything else honestly the entire film feels like a nine inch nails music video but like taking place like inside of like an apple imac or something yeah. like it has this very clean sterile sort if, of whiteness everywhere if trent Reznor used like apple products for all of his like synthesizers that's what it would be like yeah so eventually it's just kate sasha and simon are the only ones left uh simon is trying to kill both of them sasha apparently has this a necklace that has the data for the cube in it. She apparently was like a hacker or something that like got info on like the fact that uh, the company was like putting people in the hypercube. So she decided to hide herself in the hypercube. (laughs) The one place they couldn't find me. me. The hypercube. (laughs) So she has this necklace thing that has all the data apparently. Before, like, they all die, except for Kate. So I believe, like, Simon kills Sasha eventually. Uh, and then Simon succumbs to, like, the cube collapsing in on itself. Kate took the uh, necklace from Sasha. And then she just, like, yoinks out of the hypercube. Yeah. And it turns out that, like, she was actually, like, an operative of some kind for this company. And she was, like, tasked with getting this information from sasha so like after she gets out of the cube she ends up in this like weird airplane hangar which is i guess where they keep the hypercube in like a weird stasis of water or whatever the fuck and then she just like gives the info to like whoever is the ceo or whatever the fuck of this company and then immediately gets killed and that's the movie that's how it ends more or less yeah uh, <laughs> it's such like it's one of the worst twist endings I think I've ever seen. It's really bad. It's really bad because like Kate is like she's a very bland character, but like the only characteristic we really get from her is that she's really nice and that she likes Sasha a lot. And like to suddenly have it like at the way end, like literally the last five minutes of the film, being like J.K. I actually wanted you all to die, and then she gets killed immediately after is kind of a bad twist yeah yeah well it has this baffling thing right that like literally her only assignment it seems like is to go into the cube and steal a necklace from a woman who is blind and is helpless through like basically the entire movie um but kate like risks her life trying to save sasha from one of the like screensaver things and like they both come really really close to dying so it's this weird, like, it's never even hinted or suggested that Kate has any kind of ulterior motive until the last, like, 30 seconds. And she's like, oh, yeah, I uh, work for the corporation. And then just gets shot in the head. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's it's like, if you couldn't tell from my, like, summary of the film, there are massive plot holes all over the place. Yeah, there's a whole thing with this guy, the colonel, who, like apparently works for the organization and is just trying to commit suicide uh in the cube and like they're like oh he's been tortured and it's just never touched on like why or by who right and like he has a briefcase that like he apparently really wanted the contents of 
that were not in the briefcase anymore. And it's never explained what was in the briefcase. So you're just yeah. kind of confused the entire time. Yeah, it's um I think we have to give them credit that that Cube 2 it's not just like a basically like a remake of the first film in the same mm-hmm. way that so many horror sequels are like you know like they they really do try to create something with a different tone visually it's a very different look to the film. Yeah. Um the characters are I, they're pretty similar Simon the private investigator is super similar to to Quentin. Uh, I mean, private investigators are basically just cops, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that different? Yeah, well, they both fill that same role of kind of like the authoritative dude who's kind of a dick who like loses it in the cube. Pretty Um, much, yeah. We didn't mention that he just keeps like murdering alternate reality versions of Jerry and collecting Jerry's watch. So he kills like... He like just like spends years and years in the cube, apparently, in the hypercube, just living off of Jerry's. He just murders them and presumably eats them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think we assume that he's a cannibal, but it's never really explained. It's not explained, but like there's no food or water in the cube. So he has to eat people. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I think, commendable on some level that they they did try to go this different direction where instead of the the normal traps, it's something much more. I don't know, more sci-fi rather than the sort of like industrial like acid sprayer or like wire stuff. It's sci-fi if you consider theoretical math a science. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, right, it just feels kind of baffling. Like, whereas I think there are all these questions that are left open by the original film, or I guess fundamentally, like, who put them in the cube and what was the cube made for and who has the cube? those are somewhat answered in the second one that it's kind of like evil corporation has a quantum hypercube thing. But like, right. I don't think those answers are, they're not particularly interesting. No. And I, I think, whereas the first film spends a decent amount of time kind of philosophizing the, the sequel, it, it, it early on has a couple of moments where it feels like it's going to move um, away, like rather than focusing on kind of politics, like the first film, Mm-hmm. Um, or I guess, you know, the, the first film, I guess, feels very grounded and like, you know, does a corporation run this? Is it right. just like a sick billionaire or something like that? The second film feels initially like it might move in a more spiritual direction where mm-hmm. I think one of the characters is reciting the Lord's Prayer early on. Yeah. Um, and the kind of white glowing look feels like it might be speaking towards something more sacred, you know, like uh, uh, maybe an older image of heaven or something. But it drops that really, really fast. Really fast. And, and I think by the end, there's a point where it's like, you know, the first film, I think, kind of lives or dies by its subtext. And I think mm-hmm. the subtext is interesting enough that we're we're willing to go with it. Whereas the second film just kind of at some point is just like, well, we just don't have any subtext left. There's just nothing more to, to think about with right. it, I guess. Yeah. In the first film, like a lot of the interesting questions about it were like, who would make this cube? Why would they make it? Where would they get the funding for it? Where would they put it? Et cetera, et cetera. And like in the second film, you don't even get a chance to like consider any of that. You kind of immediately know this corporation made it. You don't really get a sense as to like why they made it, but you know, big corporation made it. They're putting people in it and they want it for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, you know, just a minute ago, we were comparing Quentin, the cop from the first film with Simon, the private investigator in this Mm -hmm. one, you know, and, and Quentin starts out 
you know, fairly like he's kind of like a like a tough guy, whatever. Right. Um, but but he starts out somewhat as kind of like a stabilizing point. Who's like, all right, we have to move together, work together. We'll get through this. You know, we're going to get to the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he gradually deteriorates over time. Whereas Simon starts out just kind of buck wild where he's just grabbing random people and holding them at knife point and threatening to murder everyone. Like he's, he's a psycho from the very beginning. So then by the end, when he's like a cannibal, you know, murdering the infinite Jerry's, it's not really an arc, right? It's just like a guy who was already kind of nuts being more nuts. I mean, the first scene we get of him is of him like threatening Kate with a knife so like again like what you said it's not really much of a stretch to imagine that this person would end up killing a lot of people (laughs) yeah yeah well i think you know both films very much deal with nihilism right so we have um worth the 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 cynical guy who helped design the, the original cube who kind of doesn't want to survive and i think that there's there's an interesting dynamic to him Uh, Whereas there's a moment right near the end where Sasha is just like, yeah, like we're all dead anyway. And so then Simon just kills her. And it's, it's weird. It's hard for me to describe like why one of those is like, one of these is good subtext. One of these is bad subtext. (laughs) You know, it just feels like there's, there's this kind of maybe that, that the original film kind of presents nihilism and then Mm -hmm. tries to fight against it on some level. Whereas the second film presents nihilism and in the end yeah nobody actually survives um kate the one character who is always kind of trying to help the others turns out to be some kind of double agent and then just gets murdered at the very end anyway it just goes deep into the nihilism as much as it can go so it feels like a very hopeless film yeah and you know i mean i'm super down for nihilism you know i'm I'm totally happy with uh movies like texas chainsaw that i think is fundamentally a a deeply nihilistic film yeah but i i think that there's there's a a texture to it i feel like i keep saying texture this episode texture the texture is cubicle yeah (laughs) there's it's, it's like the there's um maybe like a dialectical force, I guess, between like hope and nihilism in the Mm -hmm. original film that we're kind of constantly vacillating between these two extremes. Whereas in, in hypercube, it just really, it just comes apart kind of, you know, there's, there's, there's no counterpoint, I guess, to the, to the nihilism of it. I would actually argue that I think the two things that we're really trying to, or at least I feel like the writers and director were trying to like, counterpoint against in cube two is like reality and absurdity yeah instead of like uh, nihilism and hope and i see that very much i think one thing that they did really well in cube two is have a, like mrs paley as character because like who would be more absurd and would more like understand the weird sort of aspects of like theoretical physics and math and like everything just not making sense than a person with dementia yeah no i love that um yeah i had actually entirely forgotten about mrs paley when i was kind of prepping for this episode um so she's what a theoretical mathematician with dementia right is her fundamental thing yeah she's she's really fascinating and i think you're right that like she almost is built for the absurdity of life in the fourth dimension where nothing makes sense anyway or there's no consistency to anything right and like even with that, I feel like it kind of fails anyway. 
because like the absurdity, even though it's supposed to be absurdity, doesn't really amount to anything. Things just kind of happen for not even for like no reason, but for like no narrative reason. Max and Julia just die because they have sex and they ate really fast. <laughs> like yeah. Simon just gets his head chopped off in one reality because pillars. So everything just feels very inconsequential. Uh, it doesn't really feel like things are deserved or things are made for a specific reason. Just random things happen, which I know is like the point of absurdity. But like in a movie that's supposed to have a narrative, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- there's a scene, right? So so um, they they essentially look from one cube into another and are seeing some like alternate reality version of themselves where Simon says... Um, don't trust Mrs. Paley and murders her. And then his head gets yeah, like smashed off by some like quantum cube thing. <laughs> um, and so it sets up right. That like, uh, you know, I mean, I think for me as an audience member, I was watching it like, okay, so maybe is Mrs. Paley faking her dementia or like, what is it about her that can't be trusted? Hmm. And that never ramifies on, no. on the plot that never comes back. And she's kind of killed without much ceremony after that. Yeah. And I think that speaks to overall, like the whole kind of the, the central issue with the film. I think you're right that like in playing with absurdity, it isn't clever in how it does that. Right. Mm-hmm. That like, there's not really any logic within the cube, which, which makes sense given the, the, the structure of the film um, or the structure of the narrative, but there's not that kind of external structure as a viewer where you're like, Oh, so Mrs. Paley can't be trusted because X, Y, Z. Right. It just totally drops off the film after that. And the, the kernel's really similar where it's like he was tortured and then he just never is important again after that. Yeah, I really feel like the filmmakers were too caught up in like the weirdness of the cube and like everything involved in it that they kind of forgot to make a good plot and a plot that's like not riddled with holes. Yeah, no, I'm 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 right there with you. It, it it feels like the absurdism is like a crutch for like a, a narrative that isn't working rather yeah. than like an interesting tool for a narrative that does work. Yeah, it would be a really good, very compelling like narrative device to use if the people who made this film were better writers. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, if they had the budget for special effects that I, I mean, I you know, I, I think that like we both love low budget film, you know, neither yeah. of us is a snob that we need like our like $6 billion, you know, new Avengers movie or yeah. whatever to, to, for something to be great. But I'm fine with like the special effects, just looking like a windows 95 screensaver. You know, it's tough for me because in, in the original film, right. You know, they had um, a significantly smaller budget, mm. but the actual death scenes look enormously better. Yeah. And in, in, in hypercube, I think the, just the the cgi is just so bad and it's used so so intensely mm-hmm. i feel like it almost has to be seen to be believed kind of like yeah. how bad it it's is really bad i can accept that it's bad i think that i have a problem with it because like it's not clear what happens if that makes any sense it's not clear like what these things are uh, yeah. as opposed to like the first cube you had like a weird fence thing that cubed people okay it's really sharp it's going to kill me that way in the second cube, we have these like weird pillars that can, I guess, just like knock your head off or something. And you have this like weird shape 
that I guess just blenders you to death. So like the method in which like these abstract sort of like concept weapon thingies kill you isn't very clear. So like when someone ends up dying, it's very confusing as to like why or how they died. Yeah. Well, in the first few uh, or the first film too, there's this whole, you know, the characters are are resourceful. They they figure out that okay, if we throw a boot into the room, we can trigger yeah. whatever is going to set this off. You know, and they are able to figure out the actual workings of the traps. Um, and there's that that one really nail biting scene where any sound will set off the traps in a room yeah. that they have to pass through. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing them actively making decisions uh, in order to survive, whereas. Right what actually happens in the hypercube is really arbitrary, right? Like you just yeah. choose to have sex in this room and then it ages you 600 years or something. Yeah. Um, there, so there's, it's kind of like the character agency becomes sort of meaningless. The traps in the cube really just more feel like they, it doesn't really feel like they were placed in there. It just feels like aspects of the cube itself, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I feel like that's like, a better reading than the film deserves almost. I, mean, yeah. I, I think that makes total sense. Um, but I don't think the film itself no. understands that. No. And like, if you give it that reading, then like you can't really like have a way for the characters to reasonably like fight against the cube. Cause like all they do is just run away from it. Like they never have like a room or something where they can like outsmart the cube or whatever. All they can do is just like run away uh, until they can't anymore. Yeah, when I, I think that, um, so so slasher movies, right, have that classic mm. structure where it's kind of, you know, the the antagonist enters the, the lives of these characters, picks them off one by one, and so they're constantly running for, you know, uh, pretty much the whole second act of the film, and mm. then in the third act, the, the protagonist, like the final girl or what have you, starts to respond and fight back, you know, and, right. and the degree to which they do that varies where, you know, in... Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm, I'm blanking on the character's name, right? But she mm-hmm. sets all of these traps for Freddy and is is really active in trying to ensure right. her own survival. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis stabs Michael Myers in the eye with that little hanger or whatever. Um, but in, yeah, in, in Hypercube, that never really happens. They're yeah. just kind of on the run the entire way through, which, yeah. you know, I, I think maybe isn't necessarily fundamentally bad but it doesn't work in hypercube and no. it, it is different from, from the original cube where the mm-hmm. characters are able to find ways to respond. Yeah. And like in cube one too, it also feels like I should say cube one as well. It also feels like they're actively like participating in like the quote unquote puzzles that are in the cube. They have a reasonable way, an obvious way of like getting out, which is like, they try these things. They try this like math. They work together and eventually it works out until they find a way to get out of the cube in cube two. That's not really possible. I feel like the director, the writers are very much like throwing the characters a bone every time. Like they're trying to kind of understand how the cube works. They have this theoretical physicist who almost won a Nobel prize, like just be a dead corpse in the cube. And that's kind of how, at least Kate figures out that she has to just wait until a specific amount of time to get out. Yeah. Uh, She never does. None none of the characters except for like maybe Jerry a little bit. And Mrs. Paley do any work in figuring out like what the logic of the cube is. All they really figure out is this is a hypercube. 
uh, and it makes no sense. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So like Kate survives, I mean, you know, on, on some level, I guess, you know, she's able to uh, fight off Simon in, mm-hmm. in a couple of situations and stuff, but it's a very passive solution to the cube. That's just like, Oh yeah. At this exact time, a portal opens up or yeah. something. You just apparently just have to wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like the whole film could have been solved if they just sat in a room for like six hours. Um, and I mean, they just be, don't do that. To be fair, the first cube could have also been solved that way. That's fair. Yeah. No, that's, that that's very fair. And maybe again, it comes back to, I think the first cube does that philosophical work of like, Oh, our entire journey was meaningless. Essentially. Right. If we had just stayed here, we could have escaped, but they needed to go through that journey. And there's not really an equivalent in, in hypercube. I think it feels like much less deserved because like in part, because Kate wasn't really sharing that information with anyone else. And like, because like as an audience member, you didn't really know what the string of numbers meant until like near the end. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's totally fair. And even when you do figure out what the string of numbers means, it's not really like a journey that they've been on necessarily. It's just that they keep seeing the same numbers and the solution without the numbers, even the solution would have been fairly clear that like the cube kind of self-destructs at this time, jump through the obvious portal in the floor, you know? Right. I mean, to be fair again, like Mrs. Paley, when they asked like, or when they were like going around, like wondering how to get out of the cube, she did say it's only a matter of time. Oh my God. She did. She did. See that I think that character is just a huge missed opportunity for Honestly, yeah. I kind of feel like, you know, if if one of the characters was going to survive and turn out to be a double agent, Mrs. Paley would be so much more interesting mm-hmm. than Kate. Um, you know, I think she's Yeah, yeah, I, she would just be so much more interesting. You know, I think <laughs> they ended up kind of being like, well, we have like the kind of bland sort of traditional final girl kind of character. Right what if she was bad? And like, that's such like a, a cop out. It really is. It really is. And like, I really felt like they had way too many characters as well in cube two, as opposed to like, not in the first cube In the first cube, it felt like all the characters kind of mattered. They could have all like worked together. Like the whole, it, it felt like there was a reason why they were all together in the second cube. How many characters do we have? We had Kate, Simon, Sasha, Jerry, Max, Julia, the Colonel, this is Haley. Um, the girl that was just in, lost in there that Simon was supposed to rescue but ends up killing. Uh, the theoretical physicist who's a corpse. And like most of those characters ultimately don't matter. Julia especially is a very inconsequential character. Yeah, no, you're, you're totally right that there's, there's too many. Something um, we've talked about in one of our workshops a lot Um this is for the listeners, not for you, Kevin, because obviously we've been in the same workshops. Right. Uh, this idea of like economy of characters, right? That like, if you have too many characters, then you end up splitting too much kind of agency between them. And so each one individual person becomes kind of bland, right? Or, mm-hmm. or um, you end up kind of being like, well, this person needs something to do. Right. Right. And like, to really continue complaining about Julia, like it very much feels like the only reason she's there is because she's a lawyer for, she's a defense lawyer for the uh, company that made the hypercube. And then she gets trapped in there for some reason. It really uh, ultimately, to like veer off a little for a second, it very much feels like 
the company is just kind of putting all of its employees in the cube for some reason. Yeah, no, I was <laughs> thinking about that. Like, so you have this mega corporation and then you have like eight people that are all connected to it in fairly obvious ways, right? So right. Max, the game developer, is suing them. Julia, the lawyer, is representing them. If all of those people disappeared at the exact same time, somebody would notice that, right? Like, I mean, yeah, it's it's weird that like it's all the same, or it's all like people who are like connected by the same company and the same like case that's happening. Whilst in the first one, it just felt like random people that were picked out because they all have skills to get out of the cube. Well, and similarly, you know, something we talked about is like the flow of information in Hypercube is an absolute mess, right? That like everyone there has some connection back to this mega corporation and they all hide that much longer than it makes sense for them to hide it. Yeah. And, you know, there is a moment early on where I forget, I think it might be Jerry says that, you know, he has some connection to uh, this corporation and Simon threatens him. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's a point where, right, it just doesn't really make sense for these characters to hold that information back. And and so by the end, it's kind of each one of them is like, oh, I'm representing them in a case. Oh, I'm suing them. What what have you. Right. And so we have this series of kind of plot twists that don't necessarily make sense based on the characters themselves. You know, mm-hmm. so they feel really, really flat and really weak. Yeah. Um, I mean, like the whole reason Simon's even connected at all to the like this whole thing is because he's a private investigator who was hired by the person's parents the person is like the person we initially see at the beginning of the film uh because she went missing and she worked for that company and then later on we find out that like uh, she was well i guess we initially find out but we don't really figure out who it is until like near the beginning or near the end of the film is that she's in the cube itself and then Simon finds her and then Simon kills her. <laughs> yeah. 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 He just like instantly <laughs> murders her. Cause at that point he's just like, well, I mean, why not just kill everybody? I don't right. know. Right. So like he, he has a very tenuous connection to this company and like, it doesn't really make sense for him to be there. Yeah. Well, and it also doesn't make sense for him to threaten somebody else for being connected to this corporation. Right. Because he is as well. And then, you know, nobody in the film is like, wait a second, Kate's the only person here who doesn't have, like, some sort of fairly significant connection. I wonder what her deal is. Yeah, she's just, like, well, from her story, she's just a psych therapist, and that's it. Everyone else has a very, if tenuous, at least obvious connection to, like, the company. And if they, like, would have actually, like, if someone would have had like actual critical thinking skills, <laughs> they would have realized that the only person that doesn't is Kate. They were blinded by the math. I mean, I feel that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. It feels like a good time to move into pitches to me. Do you have any yeah. like last thoughts on uh, why cube two is a piece of shit? Uh, everything, literally yeah. everything, all of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, what what thoughts or what ideas did you have? I mean, as much as like I don't want Cube explained a lot, it would be interesting to get some kind of backstory in a sequel. Like I don't want like a ton of backstory. I don't want like a company made this and that's it. Like I wanted to 
still kind of be open like who made this why they make it things like that because i feel like it's much more compelling to be like who would have the funds to make this and the reason to make this things like that those kinds of questions uh that the first film kind of brought up and like what does it mean for like for like a mega corporation for the government to be torturing and killing people i feel like it needs to at least be a little bit vague on who made this but i do think because it's a sequel it needs to have some background info so it doesn't feel like a rehash of the first movie just just on that note i think there is an interesting connection that um both so jerry did i think he says he did the engineering on the doors inside mm-hmm. of the the cube in in hypercube and then worth had designed the exterior shell in the original cube and neither of them really knew what they were designing. Right. Right. And so I, I think that, that that's totally fair that like, you know, bringing in some sort of like life outside of the cube, I think you could totally do that without giving away much. Cause the characters who actually worked on it don't really know anything. Right. Um, so, so I think you can walk that line. Absolutely. Right. Like if even we got like a shot of the exterior of the cube and like whatever facility it's in or something like that, I feel like that'd be enough. Something like that. And then, like, I guess, like, what I would do is just to, like, kind of do a similar thing as to, like, the first cube. Just, like, have random people in it who, if they work together, could solve how to get out of the cube. And I think, like, what I would do just to make it different from the first movie is that instead of, like, them following the rules of the cube and using math, they just, like, hacksaw their way out of the cube somehow. Like, they just say, like, fuck the rules, and they get out like using the most like abrasive method there is and like just don't play by the games of cube oh i like that yeah 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 there's a line in the first film uh where somebody says like nothing is random in the cube um and that was something that kind of stuck with me that i i thought they might touch on in the sequels like okay like what happens if you do introduce randomness into the cube and I think what you're talking about is essentially making like the human characters that element of randomness. I mean, yeah, um, I really like that. It's like what I feel like a lot of these films or TV shows in this weird horror-ish gruesome game show genre really fail to do uh, is that like they kind of ignore the human element of it in order to make like the game show or whatever kind of run its course. And, like, I always think, like, realistically in the back of my head, if someone was, like, actually playing, like, Squid Game or Hunger Games or Saw or something like that, I think realistically a lot of people would not play by the rules and they would just, like, figure out whatever way that they can can to, like, survive and to get out. Fundamentally, like, the cube or whatever game is made by people, so it's going to have mistakes, and they would exploit those mistakes that were made in it. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, I'm imagining them like, you know, ripping what somehow managing to like rip one of the doors off of one of the passageways and they could use that as like a shield to block the acid. Right. Or, like, you know, if they actually start dismantling the cube uh, as a way of getting through, I think that's really, really cool. And it would feel genuinely different from the first film where they very much play kind of by the rules of the cube. Mm-hmm. I feel like it'd be really interesting to like, instead of, the question or the philosophical debate being between like nihilism and I guess not nihilism, <laughs> maybe being between a uh, free will and not free will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I really like that. I, um, 
So my pitch, I think, actually is maybe maybe complementary um, okay. to that. So what I kept thinking about um, while we were watching both films is the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. Um, mm-hmm. You know that you have somebody put into a labyrinth where the pieces move. Uh, Wait, so I real think quick, real quick, can you pronounce that word again for me? Uh, Minotaur. Minotaur. Is it Minotaur or Minotaur? I, I pronounce it Minotaur, but whatever. Minotaur. Oh God. <laughs> Well, <laughs> probably get some stimulating email from this. Uh, I don't know ancient Greek, so I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> We're not classic students. Thank God. I yeah. Actually, what if we, it, you had Cube, but you had to like be a classic student in order to get out? <laughs> the real Cube was the Odyssey all along. That makes sense. I could yeah. believe that. Um, so, yeah. So, we have Theseus and the... So what I'm, what I'm thinking about, right, is so in the story of Theseus, right, the, the labyrinth, they're putting, I think it's seven innocent people in mm-hmm. every year uh, as kind of penance. I think, it, God, we are going to get stimulating email about this. Um, oh <laughs> if I remember the story right, uh, there it's penance for Athens having somehow pissed off whatever I think it's Crete, maybe who who has this labyrinth and has the Minotaur or Minotaur. I think I think so. I think you're right. So yeah, that sounds right enough, right? Right. Um, and so what I'm imagining is essentially so we have somebody who's connected to the characters of the first film. I would say maybe it's maybe a sibling of Levin um, mm-hmm. or or a friend or something. Somebody who's connected to one of these uh, original characters who finds a way to be put in the cube themselves, mm-hmm. but they actually have help from the outside. So right mm-hmm. in Theseus story, he's given the, I think it's golden thread uh, mm-hmm. by Ariadne. Um, and so, so they have some sort of a tool for actually navigating the cube. That's, that's helping them. So we get like a little bit of the outside, a little bit of the, uh, and, and mainly focusing on the inside of the cube. Right. And then the, the big element that I would introduce is that there is some kind of a minotaur or minotaur, in the cube itself, uh, which, you know, probably wouldn't actually be like a bullheaded man, but something that's actually chasing them through. And so they're both kind of have an advantage for, for getting out um, or leading this group out at the same time as they have something coming after them. Right. I mean, he could do a bullheaded man. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a question of as far as the film goes, you know, it's very much, you know, the, the people in the cube kill each other and then mm-hmm. the cube itself as a structure kills them. Right. And so, you know, maybe the Minotaur is actually some sort of like a computer program or a robot or, you know, it, it feels like it needs to be still an extension of the physical mm-hmm. space of the cube. But mostly I, I like the idea of something that's really pushing them to have to move quickly. And so they're not only mm-hmm. navigating the traps, but they're doing so with something that's mm. also passing through at the same time. I like that. But like to push back, how is that different from like the elements in cube two? Cause like they are, that, that is basically the same thing, except like the monster is just weird math that they have to run away from. <laughs> so the trick is that we don't use weird math. <laughs> okay, I love it already. Yeah. But I mean, I guess if I were to like fuse our two pitches, right. So maybe we have somebody, who somehow conspires to be put into the cube because they lost someone close to them um, 
who is in the first film. Hmm. And then they have some kind of help from the outside that assists them in figuring out how to dismantle elements of the cube hmm. in the interior. Maybe it's like the, the little sections that they have to crawl through to go from one cube to another. Maybe there's like a weak spot in some of them. Right. Um, and then it's just, yeah, some thing that I would want to be more physical than like a window screensaver is, is chasing after them at the same time as they have now the, the kind of golden thread, I guess, in, in this plot is some sort of knowledge that they have about the actual workings of the cube. Right. Yeah. I do like that a lot more. I feel like the characters just starting out having some kind of knowledge of what's happening would definitely differentiate it from both the cube movies and would take the film in a very different direction, I think. So instead of like there being as much like maybe interpersonal conflict regarding like everyone's theories about what the cube is and like what it represents, which they had a lot of in the first film, they would initially all be like, okay, this is what it is. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and you know, I think coming back to that idea that, uh, the banality of evil that even the people who made the cube have no idea what they were making, right? They were each, uh, it's kind of that, that thing about like a group of people who can't see an elephant. So one person thinks it's a snake, one person yeah. thinks it's a tree trunk. You know, I think we're working with the same basic mechanics there. And so I, I can imagine even this character who is, I, I, I imagine would just be the protagonist of the film. You know, they've conspired to get into the cube and maybe they've blackmailed somebody on the outside by saying like, this is what you've done. Now you're going to help me do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think it's a really interesting way to go about cube. What if instead in, in, in a sequel to it, it's a pyramid or a sphere. You know, it's interesting actually, because <laughs> I, I mean that, that does uh, bring up some interesting questions, right? Because if they're in a pyramid, are they trying to move from like a cramped space at the very top of the pyramid down and things are getting gradually more and more expansive or do they have to climb up? and move through these gradually more constricting spaces. Cause I could see it having like a really interesting sort of claustrophobia factor yeah. as they go along. I mean, it makes me think of the descent, you know, where mm-hmm. for me, the most harrowing moments in that movie are early on where they're dealing with cave-ins and these tiny, really tight little tunnels. Mm-hmm. That stuff it, makes me like, cool. Yeah. You really wouldn't be able to like move up or down as effectively unless like, the floor is one of the sides, but then you'd have to climb up to get to like either the next room or the room before it, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I'm putting in way too much thought into like, what if cube was a pyramid instead? No, I mean, I, I think it's fair, right? Cause it's the, the way they navigate the cube is interesting, right? That in, I think in both movies, there's a fair amount of them having to climb on these rungs to go up the walls and access yeah. things on the ceiling and like falling from one cube mm-hmm. into the one below it um, does a lot of damage to characters yeah. um, within the film. So so I think there's totally something there. Yeah. Except in the second movie, there aren't any rungs. It's just gravity is weird. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that was a fuck up. That was a really big fuck up. Yeah. 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 Well, do you have any other thoughts on how you would fix cube as a sequel, any other final thoughts on cubes as a shape? You know, I, um, I've never solved a Rubik's cube and I just feel like I should confess that. I haven't either. I got, uh, hold on. I don't know. I think I can find it somewhere. I don't know if I have it. I have part of it. I have a Rubik's pyramid that my mother gave me a while ago. 
that my dog just completely tore up. <laughs> Listeners, it um it looks like a Rubik's cube made out of triangles, and yes. it has had a bad time. It has. I, I never solved it. It was just like a desk ornament for a while that I would like fidget around with uh, until my dog got to it and ate it. Well, there we go. So moral of the story, cube could actually work in a pyramid because Kevin has one in his house. It could, but then they would have to do trigonometry and fuck that noise. (laughs) Return to the Telepodcast is a production of Silent Machine Studios featuring music by My Silent Machine. If you enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, and do whatever else you usually do with podcasts, I don't know. Thank you for listening. <laughs>